Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, would not only our ears and eyes be open to you, but Father, would you also open up our hearts as we hear from your word. Thank you that you have no rival, you have no equal, and that in you, Lord, we are made clean. You wash away our sins. Amen. Good morning, Ocean View Church. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Uh, if you felt like maybe you were tuned into last Sunday's live stream when uh, Candace was reading, uh, you're not. Uh, we're in Romans 4 again, and uh, I asked if Candace would read it again because I think there's a lot there. And so I also asked for two weeks to go through uh, the one chapter. And you know what? You really could study Romans chapter 4 for quite some time. You could take several months, even a year, uh, to be able to uh, discover and uncover everything that's there. But it's a pleasure to be here again. I want you to imagine for a minute uh, that you're young and you're in a family and uh, you're an only child and you're a, an only biological child and so your parents have had you, they're proud of you, they love you so much and you're old enough to start to understand how the world works and then they tell you, they come to you and say, Jimmy or Susie or Sally, we're going to adopt another child, we would love to have another child and so we're going to adopt and you begin to question, well, why, why would you, but what about me, you know, you'll still love me, won't you? And you say, yeah, of course we'll still love you. Uh, but will you love the other adopted child as well? Well, of course, we'll still love him or her. And you might feel, if you were a little young Johnny or Sally or Susie, you might feel that uh, you've been either replaced or you have some, there, there, there's a competitor now in your family. And they're not, from, they're not from your blood. They're not from your mom and dad. They're, they're a stranger. They're a foreigner. And so even though your parents go through all the right procedures and steps and they adopt him or her into your family, you now have kind of a rival. But the reality is, if you're a parent and you've ever adopted a child, you love that child just the same. They, they receive the same family name. They are one of you. And your love for them is the same as it would be for your own biological child. They're the same name. There's no distinction. In the mind of a parent, there's no distinction between the adopted son or daughter and the biological son or daughter. There's no distinction. They are the same. They're both yours equally, and you love them both the same. Now, this tension that the, uh, that the biological child would have felt towards the adopted child is really what's happening, as I mentioned last week in the book uh, of Romans, at least among the Gentiles and the Jews. See, the Jews felt like they were the biological inheritors of the covenant of Abraham between God and Abraham, and so they felt really like these Gentiles have sort of crept in, and, and how did they get here? Who let these Gentiles in? And this is what I think the whole point of what Abraham, or pardon me, what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 4 is given to us one chapter earlier in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 30. Here's what Paul says. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not only the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the big idea of what we see in Romans chapter 4 is simply this, is that the gospel is good news for everyone. It's good news for everyone. There's no separation between Jew and between Gentile, and you see this theme come up all the time in Paul's letter, that there's no distinction between Jew and and Gentile. And so when you hear the word Gentile or uncircumcision or circumcised, so they, they're all the same words comparing two different types of people, the Jews being the circumcised, the, the descendants of Abraham, and Gentiles being uncircumcised. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But the big idea is that simply this, is that it's good news for everyone. And more specifically, the, we'll, we'll go through our, our time together in two parts. More specifically, what I want to help us to understand is this, is that salvation 
is through faith for all who believe. And so we'll break that into two parts, and that's how we'll uh, go through our time. Salvation is by faith, and secondly, for all who believe. So let's get started. Salvation by faith. We have a need for a Savior. And you maybe have heard that from, from a pulpit before or from sermons or podcasts you listen to that we all need to be saved. And we've all probably memorized Romans 3, 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And that's absolutely true, and we see that in this book. But imagine for a moment that you are on a plane, and you're flying across the, the Atlantic Ocean, and you're headed off on an important business trip. And because it's a business trip, you're all dressed up fancy. You've got your, you know, your nice tuxedo or your nice work outfit and you've got your briefcase with your laptop and you're sitting in first class you've got your uh, foot massage is coming but you've got your nice comfortable chair uh, the, the the flight attendant has just come by you've placed your your uh, champagne order all right and your your hors d'oeuvres are on their way and the flight is just getting ready to take off and you're feeling great in your first class seat and about an hour into the flight you've just finished your appetizers and uh, the hot towels have just come by and so now you're you're just finishing with that you feel refreshed and you're ready to take a nap and all of a sudden the flight attendant comes by and she says, excuse me, um, the, the engines have just failed and this plane is going down. And you might say to her, well, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm in first class. Like, I paid extra for this ticket. I'm on a business trip here. I'm in first class. What do you mean the plane is about to crash? And she'll say, uh, sir I, or ma'am, I'm terribly sorry to, uh, to break it to you, but the plane is, is about to go down. We've lost both engines. And so in that moment, you feel so proud, you feel so accomplished, but in that moment, your first-class seat, your tuxedo, your champagne, your hors d'oeuvres make no difference. You're in a plane that is simply going down. It doesn't matter if you're in the back row, the front row, if you're just on the first row after the little curtain that they, that they close the, you know, the uh, economy people off to, if you're in that first row, or if you're in first class, or if you're in the cockpit, it makes no difference. That plane is going down. And the point I want to make there is that we all have a need for a savior. We're all in a plane that's going down, regardless of where we're sitting on that plane and regardless of how much our plane ticket costs us or our employer if you're traveling for work. We all have a desperate need for salvation, almost as though we're in a plane that's going down. And so in that moment, the Jew who's proud of their lineage and their, 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 uh, their family tree makes no difference. They're proud that they're a descendant of Abraham. And we call this Jewish piety. And piety simply means this. It's that you have a devotion to Yahweh. So a, a, a Jew, you, if you were a faithful Jew, you would keep all the law. In fact, you probably would have had it memorized. You certainly would have memorized a good portion of, of the Torah, if not all of it. You'd have been faithful. And you'd have circumcision to prove it. And circumcision is an outward sign of the covenant that we talked about last week that God made with Abraham. The way to, de to determine whether or not someone was a Jew was whether or not they were circumcised. And here's what Paul says again in Romans chapter 3. What then are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, Romans 1, 2, and 3 are all about humans, humankind's sin, our wickedness our depravity, our rebellion against God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And when we get into Romans chapter 4, where we were last week and this morning, Paul doesn't simply just take Abraham as an example of someone who had a great faith. He does do that, but he does much more than that. He says, listen, Abraham is, is our forefather, as the Jews would say, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. But he says he's not only the forefather of the Jews, he's the forefather of Gentiles also. And you and I sit here in the 21st century 
and that sounds normal. That sounds right. That sounds like how we've heard things before. But if you were a Jew, that would have been scandalous. You would have, you would have gasped at the thought that a Gentile could be adopted into your family. And so here we are. We see that we all need saving, and that not even Abraham, O oh righteous, could do no wrong. Father Abraham had no reason to boast either. His righteousness came by faith, not through his circumcision, not through his obedience to the law or his faithfulness to God, but rather his faith in God. So we need to know that we need saving, all of us, no matter who you are. If you've ever been to a hotel and you notice in the bathroom, I always like staying in hotels because it's just clean and it's always way cleaner than my house, but you get into the bathroom and you see they have those mirrors that kind of telescope off, off the wall. And they have a magnification. And I really dislike those mirrors because they, they show me what I'm really like. And some days I feel like I should go into those mirrors and it should just say, Andrew, you're ugly. Don't look into this mirror because it's going to expose all the, all the blemishes and all the imperfections in my face and all the little whiteheads and blackheads and everything that you don't want to see. It's given to you in that mirror. And that's a good image for what the law does. The law is kind of like one of those mirrors. Here's what... Um, what a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright has to say about the law. Anyone who imagines that they can stand before God and appeal to works of the law as a reason for final justification, that is for a favorable verdict at the last judgment, is barking up the wrong tree. He's British. <laughs> so if you're going to appeal to the law for why you should be saved, you're barking up the wrong tree. Appealing to the law is like appealing to the policeman who caught you in the act or to the legal expert who framed the statute you have quite obviously broken. The things so many Jews, including Paul himself, had counted on to separate them out from the wicked world, which was relying on the law, was not only no protection against God's judgment, it would actually count on the other side. So not only is it it's no benefit to you, it's actually for your, your detriment. It actually reveals your own sin, your own wickedness is what the law does. It's like a mirror. It exposes your sin, and it exposes my sin. And so the whole point is that even though even the perfect, most obedient people to the law, it's counting against them. Because you can't uphold the law. Not even the most devout Jews could fully uphold the law. As we see in the New Testament, Jesus often upends the law. He says, if you think you've never murdered someone, well, have you ever, have you ever hated a brother? Or you've never committed adultery, well, have you ever looked at someone lustfully? Jesus upends the law, and, and it, it's about the heart. It's about the heart. And so our obedience or our, or, our, or our works could never be counted to us as righteousness. Good works, circumcision, obedience to the law is of no advantage. It really is of no advantage. And then, and then Paul gives us this, this image here in Romans chapter 4. He talks about a worker earning his wages in verse, uh, in verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So our first point is that salvation is, is a need that we all have, a need that we all, we all desperately need, we're all wicked, is given to us not by our, our faithfulness, but simply by our faith alone. Let's look at chap, uh, in chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. In this blessing then, or sorry, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Again, Jew and Gentile. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Because if you were a Jew, you'd try and reason your way through this. Well, yeah, we know that Abraham was righteous, and that's because he got circumcised. 
and he had faith and God counted him righteous and then he did all the things that God asked him to do. Here's what Paul says in verse, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. So remember in Genesis chapter 12 when God out of nowhere comes and appears to Abraham and he gives him this promise. He says, leave your, your father and your, your household, everything you have, go to the land I'll show you. And then God promises him four things. Him and his wife Sarah had no kids and not a lot of prospect because they were, they were already old. Abraham was 75 and God promises him uh, descendants. He promises him that uh, the descendants will become a nation. God promises him land and inheritance. And then God fourthly promises that there will be a blessing in Genesis 12. And it tells us that Abraham did exactly what the Lord said at age 75. Now, some chapters later in Genesis 15, as we saw last week, it's not until Genesis 15 that God actually makes this covenant with Abraham. And Abraham says, God, what are you doing? Are you sleeping? Wake up. You made me a promise. Now it's time to live up to your end of the promise. And in Genesis 15, God says, listen, Abraham, he takes him outside in the night sky and says, if you can count all the stars in the sky, that's the, that's the same number of descendants that you'll have. Trust me. And it's in Genesis 15, probably around 20 years later after the initial promise, that it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then it's not until age 86. So, so 11 years after the initial promise, not until age 86 that Ishmael is born, obviously through Abraham trying to take matters into his own hands. And in Genesis 17 is where we see this covenant of circumcision where God changes the name from Abram to Abraham and Sarah with an I to Sarah with an H. And he says this is significant and he promises Isaac's birth at age 99. So almost 25 years go by from the time that God made the initial promise to when he, belie- uh, then when he believed God's covenant, it was credited to him as righteousness to when the, 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 the symbol, the sign of circumcision actually came to fruition, 25 years. So the myth is this, is that Abraham was, was made a follower of God because he was circumcised. Paul says, nah. And another myth says, well, Abraham was righteous because he just upheld the law. Paul says no. It was the Abraham from Genesis 15, not the Abraham from Genesis 17 that was credited as righteousness. It was the same Abraham, but his righteousness was credited to him by his faith, not by his actions. And here's why. Here's the purpose that Paul tells us. He says that the purpose is this, so that Abraham would be the father of both the circumcised, the keepers of the law, the Jews, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. Most of us here are probably not Jewish. We're Gentiles. So the fact that Abraham could be the forefather of the circumcised and the uncircumcised is a scandal in the mind of a Jew. The fact that God would actually open up this promise outside of his own family tree so that others could be the recipients of God's grace. So the big idea is that salvation is needed. It's given to us by faith alone. So let's look at the second point. Who is it given to? Who is salvation given to? Romans 4, verse 13 and on, it says this, 13 through 18, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for it is the adherence of the law, for if it is, pardon me, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise 
is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, Abraham is the father of us all, because as we said, the law simply only reveals your inability to keep it. So Abraham represents his biological descendants, and if you were a Jew, you'd have, you'd have had that thing mapped out, your family tree, all the way up to Abraham. And his spiritual descendants also, because those who have faith like Abraham, it is those who are part of his descendants, part of God's family. In other words, we're not knit together by Ab- through Abraham's family tree. We're knit together in Christ. And more specifically, it's our faith in Christ, not our ability to trace our lineage back to Abraham, or much less our righteousness to the law. So it's not Abraham's family tree that knits us together. It's our faith and the righteousness of Christ. So just like that biological child, if you were, you were that child feeling a little bit threatened by an adopted child, so too I believe the Jews would have felt too from the Gentiles. And I actually think you and I, especially in our day and age and in our culture, I think you and I are a little bit more, a lot more like that child than we might like to think, the one who feels threatened by someone who's not like them, someone who's different. The biological child would feel more entitled, feel more loved, feel more deserving of their parents' affection, and I think that's how you and I feel more often than the adopted son or daughter who's brought in by grace. While we're all brought in by grace, sometimes I think we have a tendency to feel like we've earned our righteousness. We function more like the pious, law-keeping Jew than the, the scoundrel Gentiles who come in bedraggled and filthy with a whole past history of sin into God's embrace. See, we function as though we attend church. We function as though God should be somehow pleased with us. We attend church. We tithe. We give even a little extra. We have a sponsor child. We volunteer. Maybe we're, maybe we're on a committee at the church. These are all great things, but it's not those things that make God want to love us. It's not an exchange, right? If, if, if righteousness is credited to us like, a, like an employer pays his employees, what's the, what's the point of the promise? God's just, God's just a manager giving us what, what he owes us. We think that God would be so proud of us, and we have an us and them mentality of, I'm, I'm a Christian. I go to my workplace, and I'm comfortable there, and people might know I'm a Christian, or maybe they won't, but I'm comfortable here. I, I, God's happy with me. We're good. I'm good with the gospel, and God... Meanwhile, wants to save others who aren't like you. That's the whole point of this, the covenant, is that God would save people who are not like us. Them. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that the gospel is powerful enough? Do you believe that the gospel has the power to save those, those co-workers that you work with who have crude sense of humor Maybe they don't stop bugging you or st- they won't stop inviting you to things that you know you'll never go to. Do you believe that the gospel has the power to save your, those insolent in-laws, maybe, who look down upon you? Or what about those, those brash, I have a brash uncle who posts anything that comes to his mind, he posts it on Facebook and just lights up debates and disputes and people hate him and unfriend him and starts up war online. Or what about your neighbor, the people who you spend the majority of your time only a few feet away from? Do you believe that the gospel has the power to change the lives of your neighbor? And by that, I mean your next-door neighbor, the people who live on your street. Jesus tells a parable. It's not a, not a true story, but Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 10. There's a lawyer who stands up, self-righteous lawyer, expert in the law, stands up to Jesus among his disciples and some others, 
And he says, teacher, Jesus, what, what, what do I have to do to, to be good with you? What do I have to do to earn eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's the law? What does the law say? You tell me. And he gets, he gets a, an A plus on the test because he says to, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, winner. And then the lawyer pushes him one step further and he says, just, just so we're clear though, Jesus, like who are we talking about when you say neighbor? Who, who are my neighbors? He presses him farther. Jesus said, well, a man goes from Jericho, or pardon me, from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and along the way he's beaten up by some robbers and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And they're like, okay, because that route was notorious for, for, for bandits, for getting beat up. So that would have been an easy thing to picture. It's like if someone said, hey, I, I went to, you know, the downtown east side of Vancouver. You have an idea of what the downtown east side of Vancouver is like. So Jesus uses language that they're familiar with, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's beat up, and he's left for dead. And Jesus says, a, a priest, a pastor, Pastor Darren, comes down the road, and he walks along the other side so, so as to not to trip over this man who's left for dead. And then he goes further, and he says, and another man, a Levite. These are the, the religious people, right, who God had set aside to be keepers of the temple. A Levite does the same thing. He's on his way and doesn't have, couldn't be bothered to stop. And finally, a Samaritan, an enemy, someone who is unclean, has the compassion, and he stops and he helps this man. He throws him on his horse, on his, on his, uh, on his mule, takes him to town, fixes him up, bandages him, puts him up for a few nights. And to the innkeeper, he says, here's all the money I can give you now. Take care of him. If it's anything more than that, I'll, come, I'll pay the balance when I'm, when I'm back. This is a story we're all familiar with, but I think it's easy to miss the point. The point isn't that we should be nice to people. It is that. But the point's given to us right at the beginning where the lawyer asks, asks Jesus, Who, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story, and at the end, Jesus says, who of these men proved to be this man's neighbor? And the lawyer again, straight A, answer, says, well, the one who showed him mercy, obviously, and here's what Jesus says. He says, you're, you're, you're right. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise, showing mercy to your neighbor. So I pose the question to you, who are your neighbors, your enemies, people who aren't like you, people who drive you crazy, people you don't think that actually would ever come to Christ even if you could make them? Who are those people there's an us and a them. If you've got someone in your mind, do you really believe that the gospel has the power to save that person or those people? And if so, how? How is it that that person would ever, ever come to Christ, even if you could make them? How is it possible? Well, I think it's possible only by God's grace. The fact that you and I could be adopted, could be brought into God's family is simply a gift of grace. It says this in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father, or pardon me, in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17 tells us how as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
You see, God, with a breath, commanded existence into existence. And God, in his loving mercy, is the one who extended grace unto his followers, unto you and I. See, the covenant with Abraham is that salvation to all, the righteous, the unrighteous, the churchgoers, the pastors, the ushers, the greeters, is purely by God's grace and grace alone. This is the unique message, by the way, of, of the Christian faith, which is, I, I think, why it stands up so well up against all the others, is that it's by grace. You and I are ugly. We don't deserve being saved. God would be completely just justified in sending us down on that plane. First class, second class, third class, flight attendants, pilots, everybody. That would be the just thing to do. Our punishment for sin is death. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. And we all deserve death. But the unique message is that God's gracious and God extends grace to us. How do you understand grace? Uh, a plain definition of grace is that it's unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness. You can't work for it. It has to be given to you by someone who chooses to, to show grace and kindness towards you. I don't watch football at all, but uh, if I do, I watch one game a year, and it's usually the last game. Whether it's the Grey Cup or the Super Bowl, I usually like to watch those because there's usually snacks. But the part I look forward to the most is the end, when the suspense is over and the players, the confetti explodes out of the little stanchions and the crowd goes wild and the, 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 the players get their hats and the coach gets Gatorade all over them and they run to the field. Because it's over. The victory's won. They, they, they've, they've defeated the opponent and the game's over and the score was close and, oh, I wasn't sure there for a minute, but the game's over and they won. And what I love to see is the players when they bring their kids to the field with them. And sometimes the, the player, you know, the big quarterback has his little tiny two-year-old daughter with her little twig legs over his shoulders. And she's smiling and looking at the lights and all kinds of stuff. And he's telling the, the people who interview him how, how they won. And, you know, what did you do? And, well, we scored more touchdowns and it was, it was great. And this, this girl has done nothing to get down to that field. She didn't, she didn't score any goals, any touchdowns, and get any points. She never trained, but because of her, what her father had accomplished, she gets to participate in the victory, and she gets to ride on, on her daddy's shoulders because of what her daddy's accomplished, and she gets to celebrate, and he'll put the hat on her head, and she gets to have Gatorade poured all over her, and she gets to celebrate in the victory that her dad won. She gains full access to the field, full access to everything that the father has accomplished simply because she's his daughter. It's grace. It's a good image for grace that we get to ride on the shoulders of Christ and partake in the victory and be a recipient in the promise that was given to us. And so if someone said, have you ever been shown grace? You need not think very long. <laughs> yeah, you've been shown grace. You've been forgiven from your sin. You can ride on the shoulders of Christ who has accomplished it all. So we've looked at how it's received by faith. And the last thing I want to point out is that it's for everyone. It's a gospel for everyone. Oftentimes, uh, people who are really s much smarter than I and they work in business and marketing, they, they have what's called a target audience. If you're going to start a company and you go to see an advisor, they'll say, well, who's your target? Who are you trying to reach? And you have an idea of who you want to reach, and you want to reach the people who are most likely to buy from you or who are the, who are the, who are the most beneficial 
you're going to target those people and put your effort and time and energy and money and resources into those people who, are, who make it worth your while, usually for a profit. But God doesn't have necessarily a target audience in the same way. His target audience is that all would repent. The Bible's clear that not all will repent. But it tells us, the Apostle Peter tells us that it's God's desire that all should reach repentance, that many would believe. And so we don't know who God will save. We don't know who God will show grace to, who, whose heart God will open the eyes of to receive salvation, to repent from their sin. We don't know who those people are. It's probably better that way. We should let God be God and focus on what our mandate is, what our commission is. The gospel is for everyone. You may know the name Corey Tenboom, and she's a very well-known woman who survived the Second World War. She's a, she's a Dutch woman, and she, she was arrested, her and her family, for, st- for hiding uh, Jews, for providing a safe place for them to hide during the Holocaust so they could, they could hide in this secret closet that they had made. And they got away from it for a long time, and they were able to, to conceal, really, uh, Jews and save lives for a long time. But they finally got caught. They got caught. And then they were arrested, and they were sent to concentration camps. And Corey got to spend a lot of her time with her sister Betsy. And eventually her sister Betsy lost her life in a concentration camp. And later, and later as the story goes, you should read the story if you, if you can. The book's called The Hiding Place. There's others. So that's a good one. She's freed. She's released from prison and, or, or from the concentration camp, sorry. And it's, an, it's, it's, it's really a God thing how that happens. I won't spoil it for you, but she's released and then the war ends. And so this woman who survived the Second World War, who's experienced concentration camps, faced death numerous times, she begins to go around uh, Europe and begin to share her story, share her experience in churches, and um, she became a, a prominent speaker. This is a reflection from her autobiography, The Hiding Place. She says, it's in 1972, she wrote this. It was a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear, mo- hear they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. A hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, 
who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than to take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message of God, that God forgives has, prior, has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will I, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had come, sorry, pardon me, I had uh, a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outer world and rebuild their lives. No matter what their physical scars, those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. As I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely I did then. Amen. See, the gospel is good news for everyone. Neighbor, an enemy, a prison guard, a murderer, a convict. The gospel is good news for all who believe. Continue and wrap up with these thoughts. Paul picks up in Romans 4, verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The very purpose of God's covenant with Abraham wasn't the Jews only. It wasn't for righteousness. It was for the forgiveness of sins. The covenant started in Genesis 12 and goes on till today and tomorrow until Christ's return. That's why there'll be many counted. That's why Abraham's descendants will be as, as innumerable as the stars in the sky because this is a covenant that is still being fulfilled. The word that Paul uses is justification. 
And that word is significant. It's a theological term that simply just means this. It means it's a, it's a legal declaration of, of wrong being taken away from you, uh, of a right standing and the removal of sin. And so, for example, in the parking lot after church here, I, I'm in a hurry to get home and I, and I bump into your car and I dent the bumper in and you feel bad being mad at me and so you say, listen, Andrew, you just be more careful, but I forgive you. Don't worry about it because that would be awkward for us to go through insurance and be paid. It would be weird. So you just say, listen, go on your way. Thanks for coming. I'll take care of this. I go. I'm off the hook, but you have a dent in your car. (laughs) And even though you've forgiven me, that debt doesn't just go away. It has to be paid. It'll come from your pocket. Or if you tell the sad story to the guy at the body shop, he might say, listen, I'll fix it. Don't worry about it. The debt can keep being transferred, but the debt does not go away. It has to be paid and absorbed somewhere. Debts don't disappear. We can't forgive and forget. There's always, there's always going to be a cost that has to be paid by someone in order to make things right. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is what makes it so powerful, is that Christ was delivered on our behalf and raised for our justification. For me, an enemy of God. He would die for me. And so what Christ has accomplished, his righteousness, is now given to me and I can participate and receive that, that grace on the field like a little girl on her daddy's shoulders who's just won the Super Bowl. Yet a much greater victory indeed. So what's our job? We're going to leave here and go back to our normal lives. What's our job? What do we, what do, we do with this? It'd be a waste of time if it was just simply a history lesson on the book of Romans. What do we do? I think Jesus' command to the law, to the lawyer, pardon me, is true for us. Go and do likewise. This is why Jesus in Matthew 28 gives us the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the commandments, and surely I will be with you always to the ends of the age. Go! Make disciples of all nations, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what neighborhood they live in, regardless of if you're related to them or not, or how crude their sense of humor is, go and make disciples. This is why missions work is so significant. Global missions, local missions, church planning, worldwide relief, reaching the unreached, investing time with your neighbors, bringing them over, inviting them to church. If you believe that the gospel is powerful, go and do likewise. Even holy living, living with integrity, being salt and light, heeding the words of Jesus as a descendant of Abraham, by God's grace, go and do likewise. Why, you might ask, why would I do that? Well, Paul in Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Gentile, because salvation is by faith for all who believe believe it's good news for everyone and that's why mariah's illustration was so perfect because when we believe our sin is taken away we're made clean and that's why as she referenced paul referencing david that's why we can pray like david who says blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered blessed is the man against whom the lord will not count sin that's us let's pray Father, thank you that you don't count against us our sin, that we've been forgiven. And Father, what a marvelous truth it is to know not only that we've been saved from the punishment of sin, but also, Lord, that you, you have a further work to do still, 
to reach people that we don't actually believe fully that you can reach. So Father, you're capable of speaking the things that don't exist into existence. You're capable of the impossible. Father, you're a mighty God. And so would you use us as bold ambassadors of you in our gospel proclamation and the way we live our life in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the privacy of our own home. Father, use us as salt and light so that we can see this covenant you made with Abraham continue to be fulfilled by your grace. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we ask all of these things for your glory. Amen. Let's continue our worship. Thanks, Andrew. That was awesome. Um, yeah, we're just going to go into our pastoral prayer and then off to worship after that. So uh, just bow your heads and let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for the beautiful reminder of forgiveness. Um, those beautiful pictures. And God, I'm sure that there's someone in our lives, I know I can think of it, and, and you can bring to the mind of, of anyone here, someone that we need to forgive. But even more than that, um, that you've forgiven us, and as that's a reminder that we need to forgive and pass that along. And we thank you for that. Uh, God, we want to lift up um, Fernando and Eleni. Uh, so excited to have